Hey, this is Steve with Life Worth Living Church. Hey, we were in a small group um, just before the pandemic shut down our meetings at church, and someone asked this question, what happens to Christians when they die? Now, before answering that question, I really wanted to get through Jesus's physical and actual resurrection for our Easter service, but now that it's the Sunday after Easter service, I thought I'd go ahead and try to answer that question. It's been a super interesting study for me, and it's something. There, there's some things that I already kind of knew, but then there were also some surprises as I went through this. So listen in. This has just been so encouraging and inspirational to me, and I know that you're going to be blessed and strengthened. one more Sunday and talk about what happens to a Christian when they die and what does the Bible say about their resurrection in specific. We know that we're living somewhat of a resurrected life right now because in Romans I think it's 8 11 it says that the Spirit of God will give life to your mortal body so we know that the Spirit of God is literally keeping us hopeful encouraged and therefore alive. Um, but we want to know in answer to this question that was posed almost six weeks ago, and I promised Jesse that we'd talk about it. Um, we're going to talk about that this morning. What happens to a Christian when they die? We're going to start in Matthew 22, 23. And um, <clears throat> it's the story uh, of Jesus being trapped by a group of men called the Sadducees. And let me tell you just something real quick about the Sadducees. So if you read anywhere in the New Testament, in the Gospels that is, you'll read about Pharisees and Sadducees. And they were uh, groups of religious men, the Sadducees in particular, where it was a group of uh, leading priests who over the last two or three hundred years at, at, at the point of Jesus' life, over the previous two or three hundred years had been heavily influenced by Greeks, by Greek philosophy in particular. And what they had done is these these Sadducees, these Jewish priests, had mixed this Greek philosophy in with their Jewish religion and somehow, some way, they had ended up believing that there was no such a thing as resurrection. I don't know entirely what they believed what happened after you died, but they did not believe that they would be resurrected. It sounds pretty close to me like an annihilationism where we believe and we know that once an animal dies, it ceases to exist. But we know that when we die, that there's something, uh, there's an afterlife. There's something that happens afterwards. And so these Sadducees had mixed Greek philosophy with a religion and come up with some pretty strange ideas. And so in Matthew 22, 23, this group of men or a group of these Sadducees approached Jesus trying to trap him. But before I read this scripture to you, um, I want to just ask a question, and that is, what have you mixed with your Christianity? If they mixed Greek philosophy, what have you mixed with your Christianity? Have you mixed materialism with your Christianity so that there's maybe 
two equal parts in your life. One, one part Christianity and one part materialism. And let me explain what materialism is. It's, it's that you care a lot about what you have, about the clothes that you wear, or the money that you have, or the house that you live in, or the cars that you drive. You're very materialistic. Let me tell you what, we can't afford to mix materialism with Christianity. Christianity has to be totally in everything what we are and who we are. Or maybe you've mixed in your Christianity or with your Christianity uh, evolution. You're trying to reconcile what you believe is, is factual in terms of scientific, the scientific theory of evolution, which by the way is not truth, but you're trying to mix in evolution and reconcile it to the Bible. Let me tell you what, you'll never be able to do that. And let me tell you why. God created the heavens and the earth. You can't mix evolution and creationism. Either the Bible is true or it's not. You can't reconcile the two. Or maybe you've mixed with your Christianity politics and you're willing to, uh, you're willing to vote for someone who is against prayer in school or is for abortion or is, is for a host of non-Christian values, supports a host of non-Christian values. Have you mixed your politics with Christianity? I challenge you not to do that. Be a Christian through and through and don't mix anything with Christianity. Let Christianity stand in your life by itself. It's all that you need. But that's what these men had done. They had mixed Greek philosophy with their religion and they had some pretty crazy conclusions. So let me read to you from Matthew twenty-two, twenty-three. It says, That same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. They came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses taught us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up the offspring for him. Now there was seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. Since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. I hope that brother was a good-looking guy. That'd be a real bummer to have to, be, <laughs> to have to be put off with somebody that you don't like. But she had to marry the brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right down to the seventh. So you get the picture. This poor lady had to marry seven different men, all of the same family, not at the same time, one after another. Verse 27, Finally the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, these are the Sadducees putting out the scenario for Jesus. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife did she, will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Listen to Jesus' response in verse 29. Jesus replied, you are in error, period. You're wrong, is what he said. And I wonder how many times we come to Jesus with an excuse, with an argument, and Jesus looks at us gently and tenderly and says, you're wrong, you're in error. And he goes on to explain, he says, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Wow, let me tell you what, we have got to read our Bibles. Jesus was telling these Sadducees, you're priests and you don't even know the scripture. 
you're wrong. You don't even know the scripture. And I, I think oftentimes, whenever we, uh, we mix our Christianity with something else, we stop reading the Bible and we start reading other sources. And we go down the wrong path and we draw the wrong conclusions. We've got to read our Bibles. Look at this time that we're in right now, this pandemic. Some of us are literally bored at home. Maybe not all of us, but some of us might be bored at home. Pick up your Bible and read it maybe for the first time. And, and here's the secret to reading your Bible, by the way. It's not a, a function of discipline so much as a function of enjoyment. You will read the Bible because you enjoy the Bible. But you can't start enjoying it until you've picked it up for the first time. And so pick up your Bible in this boring time, in this isolated time. Make good use of your time. Get to know the scripture so that you're not going to go down the wrong path like these Sadducees did. Let me ask you, how can your life change if you don't study and think about the Bible? You'll never change. You'll never become a different person. And you know what? We're capable of changing. I'll never forget, we had a vice president of human resources at my company. It was a, a former vice president. She no longer works there. But she told me, once I asked her, how do you interview people? I was curious about her, her approach to interviewing people. And she said, I always ask them this one, one question. She says, do you, her interviewees, the people that want a job at her company, she says, I always ask them, do you believe people can change? And, and that's a very insightful question. And I, I answer that question, yes, people can change. I can change for the better. I can stop doing the bad things that I used to do and start doing the good things. I can improve in my habits and my behavior. But with God's help, I can even do so more. All right? And so how can you change if you don't hook up to the, the life source of the Bible, God's word, start reading it and thinking about it? You will change. Righteousness will get into your heart and start displacing all the messes that are in your, in your life and my life. So you might ask, well, it's so hard to read the Bible. Well, first, as I've mentioned, you've got to enjoy reading the Bible. And uh, I was talking to someone this week that has, it's, it's by admission, has told me, I have a hard time reading the Bible. You know what they do now? They put on Christian music. They turn it up, I think, fairly loudly, and it keeps them focused on reading. Now, that trick may not work for you. It may not work for me. But you and me, we got to find out what works and start doing what works. Some of us just simply need to get up in the morning and make it the first thing that we do and not the last thing that we do at the end of the day. But Jesus didn't only tell them that they, they weren't acquainted with the scriptures, that is the Bible, but he said, you don't know the power of God. You don't know the power of God. And I am so excited about the next three or four weeks we're going to be talking about walking in the Spirit and therefore walking in the power of God. I am so excited about it. You know, religion downplays God's power, but relationship with Jesus ignites God's power in your life. So, religion kills the power of God in your life. Relationship with Jesus ignites the power of God in your life. Let me give you some, some recent examples of the power of God that we've seen at work. All right, We were praying for someone's fever this week. This person was already debilitated with health issues 
and they had a fever of almost 102. Our church prayed, and overnight, the power of God brought that fever down, and as far as I know, that person is doing very well now, praise God. That's the power of God. We prayed another uh, last Sunday for someone's son who this person had not heard from for quite some time. There's a lot of worry. There's a lot of anxiety because of this. We prayed, and 15 minutes later, the son called his parents. Mm. That's the power of God. And I want to ask you right now, are you familiar with the power of God? Because you can have God's power working in your life and should have God's power working in your life every minute of every day. So you might ask, well, how can I start getting this power source from God so that I can start seeing it at work? Well, the first thing is you've got to unplug from your other power sources. Stop being so controlling and manipulative. Stop, stop being your own power source and start plugging into God's power source. Stop trusting in your own intelligence and start plugging into God. Stop keeping score on everything and start looking at God's score. Stop trusting in your own resources and start trusting in God's power. So disconnect from the things that you trust, trust in and start plugging in to what you can trust in, and that's God and His power. Well, we keep reading on in, in Matthew 22, verse 30. Let me make sure I got my chapter right. Yeah, Matthew 22, verse 30. It says, Jesus says, after saying you're not familiar with the scriptures or the power of God, He says, at the resurrection... He, notice Jesus didn't say, well, I believe there will be a resurrection. And we need to stop saying that. I believe, or I feel, or I think. What does the Bible say? And speak it dogmatically. What does dogmatically mean? It's, it means speak it as if it's the truth because it is the truth. No ifs, no ands, and no buts. All right? And so it says, Jesus says that the resurrection people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. So this means that whenever Tina and I are both passed on and in heaven, we'll no longer be a married couple. We'll still be very tight. We'll be good friends, but there won't be marriage in heaven. You know that sounds really different from what other religions describe their paradise as? Have you noticed that? Uh, listen to this. The Muslims believe each man will be given, uh, I think it was 70... I don't know, dozens of virgins. <laughs> and then we have our, our, uh, our, our Mormon uh, folks who believe similar things. And let, let me tell you what, I'm not here to downplay a Muslim or a Mormon, although I believe they're very much on the wrong track. My, I'm here to point out that your definition of paradise can help you understand if you're on the right track or the wrong track. Because the Bible says, and God says, that in heaven there will be no marriage. And the desires that we have here on earth will be very different from the des desires that we have on earth. Anybody, by the way, anybody that tells you that we're all going to end up in the same place and all religions get you to the same place is completely wrong. Is completely wrong. Uh, I will tell you this straight up. A Muslim is not a Christian and a Mormon is not a Christian. Why? Because we have very different views of who God is. I want to be very clear about that. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. We have to accept Jesus as the Son of God, and therefore Jesus' description of what heaven is going to be like as well. Verse 31, 
But about the resurrection from the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Jesus goes on and makes this bold, powerful statement. He says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teachings. And I'm sure the Sadducees felt very foolish as well, because Jesus made his point very well. So the question is that we want to answer today through this story is what happens to Christians when they die? I want to make a quick side note real quick. And that is, any of us here most likely has lost a loved one. And that person, for many of us, has been a Christian. All right? Um, but whether the loved one you've lost is a Christian or not, it's time to start focusing on God when you lose your loved one. And I want to explain a little bit more. God loves you. In, in despite, of, despite your loss, He loves you. He wants to comfort you. He wants to talk to you, and He wants to watch over you. So my side note is this. When you lose a loved one, don't try to contact that loved one. All right, They're dead. They're gone. There, there's an inability for you to be able to access them and talk to them. And furthermore, they can't help you. They're, they're gone. They've passed on. But you know what? Who you can reach out to and contact is God. You can contact Him and He will help you. Contact God instead of trying to listen to the dead. Listen to His voice and realize He's watching over you. I wanted to mention that because I have all kinds of friends at work and people that I run into that seem to believe they can talk to their dead loved ones. And I want to assure you, the Bible is very clear. You cannot do that. And it's not going to do you any good. They can't help you. But God can help you. And God wants to talk to you. And God wants to reassure you. But back to our question, what happens to a Christian when they die? First of all, I want to point this out. There will be a resurrection of Christians who die. Jesus points this out very clearly. There will be a resurrection of the dead, of those who are in Christ. In other words, Christians. And I want to point, to you, point you to several scriptures. This week has been extremely exciting as I studied this. Honestly, it's the first time I've actually studied this. And it was very interesting to me. It was very exciting to me. And it made living my life actually a little bit more exciting, looking forward to what's going to happen to me and happen to us who are in Christ, who have opened our hearts to the Lord. But 1 Thessalonians 4.16, listen to this. It says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with a voice of the archangel, with a trumpet call of God, and listen to this, the dead in Christ will rise first. The people who are dead, who have been Christians during their life, they will rise first. And that word rise has to do with resurrection. They will be resurrected first. But they will physically and visibly rise as well, which is very exciting. Another verse tells us the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. In a flash, in the twinkle of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. 
We will be changed. That's a word of metamorphosis. We will be transformed. A better word even is we will be translated. We will be translated from the old to the new. We will be given new bodies. But we'll see more specifically how and when this happens. In fact, here's my next question. When will this happen? When will we be resurrected? Well, John 6, verses 40, 44, and verses 54 tells us the same thing over and over again. Again, when will this happen? John 6, 40 says, for my, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. I will raise Him up at the last day. When will we be raised up? At the last day. That's curious. Well, let's read on. Verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sends me draws them, and I will raise them up when? At the last day. He says it again. Verse 54 of John 6. Whoever eats my blood and drinks excuse me eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise them up at the last day. It's referenced several times here. Well, let me explain to you what the last day is. The last day very clearly is when Christ returns. Christ returns. Let's put it into perspective. When was the first day? Well, the first day is in Genesis when the account of creation begins to take place. That was the first day. Now we're looking at the end of the world when Jesus returns. That's the last day. That's why the Bible says he's the beginning and the end. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the bookends of history. All right? We're in the middle of that time frame right now, but one day we'll, there will be the last day. And let me tell you what. It's not going to be an environmental catastrophe that ends our world. It's not going to be a nuclear war. It's not going to be an asteroid. It's going to be God that puts an end to our world when he design, whenever he decides and when he's designed to do this. So what happens to the believers? Here's the question that I think uh, my good friend was asking. What happens to believers who die before the last day? Because millions upon millions before and after Jesus who have believed in God, who have loved God, have died, where are they right now? <laughs> what does that look like? And that's the answer, I think, that we really want to... That's the question that we really want to answer today. Let me give you some really good scriptures that answer those questions. And that's what I love about the Bible. The Bible tells us everything that we need to know about this life and the life to come. Philippians 1 Verses 21 through 23. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I go on, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, if I am to go on living in the body, it would mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is by far better. Wow. So when we die, it says here, we will be with Christ before the last day. We don't have to wait for the resurrection to be with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.8 gives us a similar picture. 
We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body, that means to be dead, physically dead, and to be at home with the Lord. So in other words, as soon as we're away from our body, we're at home with the Lord. We're with Christ. And in, going back to Philippians 1, he refers to it as a gain, a benefit to do this. But in Luke 23, 43, I think says it all. And it's incredible. It's a story of Jesus being crucified with two criminals, one to his left, one to his right. So there's three, three crosses, and we've seen this depicted many, many times. On one side, one criminal is hurling insults at Jesus. On the other side is a criminal whose heart is softened and he's opened. And he tells his friend who's hanging on the other side of Jesus, and he says, you and I deserve to be crucified, but this man has done no wrong. And the criminal, the good criminal, call it, says something interesting. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into my king, into your kingdom. Remember me. And you know what Jesus says? In Luke 23, 43, Jesus answers him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's just incredible. You will be today. The minute you die, you are with Jesus in paradise before the resurrection that occurs the last day when Jesus returns. So we see this. In these scriptures, it's gainful. In other words, it's an advantageous. It's a benefit. You're with Christ. You're at home with the Lord. You're this very day in paradise with Jesus when you pass on. So very clearly, <laughs> it's a good thing. And you are conscious and aware of it as soon as it happens. I can't tell you the number of funerals I've attended. And I'm sure you've attended many funerals yourself. But as you're looking at your loved one, the body of your loved one, no one can come to the conclusion that that's that person anymore. That person has gone somewhere and is no longer there. And that person is aware and conscious somewhere else. There's, the Bible says that God has put eternity in the heart of men. We can't conceive of not existing after we die. It's not conceivable to us, and that's because God has put the eternity in the heart of man. So, um, this is something very much to look forward to as a Christian. Something to look forward to as a Christian. So, But, listen to this, after death, we won't immediately experience the resurrection of our body because that's reserved for the last day. So what does this mean? To be in paradise not yet with a resurrected body. Well, there's several scriptures, thank goodness, that tell us what this looks like, what this, what this will be like. And it starts, these start with Hebrews 12, verses 22 through 23. In this scripture it says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, another words, heaven. All right, You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose name is written in heaven. You have come to the God, the judge of all, to, listen to this, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. When Christians have died, they will go to heaven as spirits. Their spiritual person, if you will, 
will go to heaven to be with Jesus until the day of their resurrection, but they will go there without their resurrected bodies. What is this spirit that we're talking about? It's the same spirit that's spoken of in John three, in, in John chapter three, that where Jesus is speaking to this Pharisee named Nicodemus, and he says, "You must be born again." Why? Because there needs to be a spirit within you, your person, your your not your soul, your spirit that is caught up. And if you don't have that spirit, that second birth, there's not going to be anything to go up to heaven. There's only death. There's only death. And so we must be born again. We must make that decision for Jesus today that says, Jesus, I want to believe in you because when I die, I want that, that, that part of me, that spiritual part of me to go to paradise with Jesus immediately on the very day that I die. But in Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11, we get even more information here or about the same, maybe a little bit more, but it says... When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. Not the bodies, the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them will be given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer. And I looked up this word wait, and it's a wonderful, wonderful word. It means to rest. They were told to rest in the presence of God a little bit longer, to be there with ease a little bit longer. And it literally means intermission from labor. It's like a holiday. It's like a, a, a vacation. It's like time off. When we die and we go to be with the Lord, we will be at complete rest complete rest until the last day and we will be completely aware that's the good news there's no biblical account of soul sleep after death of lack of consciousness after death we will be fully conscious the bible does speak of of death as falling asleep but the sleep is death from which we awaken in heaven and so we're, we're, we're in heaven aware, awaiting the resurrection of our physical bodies. Now I'll go back to scripture, and I'm going to read it from the King James Version that puts it into perspective, just a, a, a phrase from it. It says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Not unconsciously present with the Lord, but consciously present with the Lord. i tell you what. I'm not looking forward to death, but I'm looking forward to what happens after I die. <laughs> it's going to be absolutely exciting. So, that being the case, fast forward to the last day. When Jesus returns, what is this going to look like for those who have been dead and for those Christians who have been dead and also for those Christians who are alive at the last day when Jesus returns? They both look a little bit different. In 1 Thessalonians 3.13, this is a really interesting scripture that really got my attention. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13, it says, um, To this end, we, uh, we may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. See, when Jesus comes back, those 
those spirits of the of the Christian dead will be with Jesus and they will come back with him. You will not only see Jesus, you will see all the Christians of all history coming back with him. Absolutely amazing. It gives me chills. <laughs> Absolutely exciting. And so they will return with Jesus. So then we jump down to 1 Thessalonians 4:16. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 16. For the Lord himself will come back, come down from heaven with a loud command, with a voice of the archangel, with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now that will be amazing. Because there's another scripture in Revelation says that the sea will give up its dead. <laughs> and so all of these bodies from all down history will, will come out of their graves uh, will, will, will be given form because they will have disintegrated physically, but they will come up and the bodies of the Christians will come in somehow, be translated, and the spirits of those Christians will come back into a resurrected body at that instant. Unbelievable. I can't imagine what that'll look like or feel like, but it'll absolutely be incredible. But let's, let's read on another scripture here. So Jesus is coming back with all the saints. Their bodies come up, rise up, and, and there at that, at that time, those Christians, are re they're given resurrection. They're given resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. Mm. This is that translation, that transformation that I'm talking about, where all of a sudden the, the perishable, you know what a perishable uh, fruit is, it perishes, it, it starts to rot after a while. We will be imperishable. We will no longer be subject to decay or death or sickness. We will be raised imperishable. And it says here in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, we will be changed. We will be changed. We will be translated into a new body given to us by the Lord. So we know when this will happen. We've already read this in John 6, 40. He will raise them up at the last at the last day, the spirits of the returning saints will be reunited with their resurrected bodies, as one commentator put it. I'm just quoting the way that it was read by this commentator. So what will happen to those who are alive at the last day when Jesus returns? Well, the Bible is very clear what happens there as well. So let's pretend that today is the day Jesus comes back. It's the last day. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 tells us exactly what's going to happen. It says, After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them. Who? The Christians who have died before, who are now newly resurrected. We will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. <laughs> Can you imagine? We start floating up into that air. We go up. We see Jesus. We see millions upon millions upon millions of other godly people. And we're caught up in the air. If, <clears throat> and it says, and so, shall, and so will we be with the Lord forevermore. Praise God. Unbelievable. What will our resurrected body be like? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, 44, it says, 
It is sown as a natural body. That's our existing body right now in 1 Corinthians 15, 44. But listen to this. It it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Man, oh man. So our our newly resurrected body will be a spiritual body. And here's the incredible thing about it. When Jesus was resurrected, we got a glimpse of what our spiritual bodies will be capable of. (laughs) No more limitations. Jesus appeared to the disciples. Uh, He somehow got through a locked door. He was here. He was there. He was other places. Now, I'm not here to, to suggest or recommend what exactly that'll look like, but Jesus did show us what a spiritually resurrected body is like. And the Bible says we will be like him in that respect. Absolutely amazing. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, 52 through 53, which I've already read, but I'll read again, adding verse 53 to it. It says, In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead in Christ will rise imperishable, we will be changed. Listen to this, verse 53 of 1 Corinthians 15 says, For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable and the mortal with immortality. What would you think if you knew that you would never die again? You would never get sick again. You would never experience pain again. You would never be beat again, not physically, but won over, or for that matter, never abused again. Can you imagine what that would be like? That is what it's going to be like in heaven. That is what it's going to be like with your resurrected body assuming that you've given your heart to Jesus, that you're follow, that you are a follower of Jesus. Not a perfect follower, but a follower. Someone who's trying to follow the Lord. So here's a, here's a thought. We will be the same recognizable souls once we're re- resurrected. I have four kids, and I'll pick on Tara, all right? When Tara and I are resurrected, we will both recognize each other. Our unique personalities, all right? We will, we will not lose our identities, the identities that God created us with. Our identities will last for all eternity. Now, the Bible does tell us that we'll, we'll have a new name, but our, our uniqueness, our personalities will be held intact in some respect, will be recognizable. Just as Jesus was recognized by his disciples after he was resurrected, they recognized Jesus. There was something about him that they recognized. Now, many Eastern religions claim that utopia is where you lose your identity into the oneness of the universe. You know what? Here again, you can judge the truth of religion by its paradise. This is simply not the case. And it goes against any and everything that a human being has inside of him. No one wants to lose their identity. And being a Christian is not losing your identity. It makes your identity even stronger. Your identity is important to God. He loves who you are. He loves the qualities you have. He loves your quirky ways. He loves your uniqueness. He loves it in the morning when you open your eyes and when you go to bed at night. He loves it when you say something funny. God loves your identity and he's not going to allow you to lose that identity. 
in some form or fashion, you will be recognizable when you go to heaven and when your body is resurrected. He loves your creativity, your talents, your giftedness, and your accomplishments. But let me tell you something God does not love. It's your sinful nature. It's my sinful nature. He doesn't love our tendency towards evil. He doesn't love our self-centeredness. He despises our stubborn attitudes. But that's why he gave his son Jesus, to pay the price for our sins. And so if we'll accept him and we'll repent of all our selfish sinfulness, he will come into our hearts and our lives, and you can be sure that your identity will be preserved for all eternity. Praise God. I don't know about you, but I want to be a Christian. I want to be a Christian. I want to have the identity of Christ in my life. In Revelations 20, verse 1, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the, for the first heaven and the first earth are passed away, and the sea is no longer, or is no more. Praise God. Not only will we be given a resurrected body, we'll be given a new heaven and a new earth. Can you imagine exploring that new heaven and that new earth? I love adventures. I can't wait for the adventures of heaven. <laughs> it is going to be absolutely, absolutely unbelievable. And John, I'm, I'm, I'm almost done here. I'm just going to give you one more verse. John 5, 28 through 29. Jesus says, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. That's in John 5, verses 28 through 29. Right now in your life, at this time, these precious, at most 80, 90 some people 100 years, some people 20 years, some people just five years. These are precious times for you to make a decision for Jesus. He is not here to condemn you now, but if you wait and you pass on, it says here that you will rise to be condemned. I don't want to be one of those people. I want to, be, I want to rise to live, to be saved. So what can we do? What can we do right now? Jesus said to those Sadducees, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. I'll tell you what, we can start today, this very Sunday, April 19th, and we can say, you know what, I want to start enjoying God's word. I want to enjoy every dot, every tittle. <laughs> I want to enjoy uh, everything in, in the Bible. And I want, to, I want to get to love God's word. And then we can, we can also begin to experience God's power. Unplug yourself from other power sources and say, I want to experience the power of God. As Paul said, in I think it was Philippians 3, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, but it says, I want to know the power of God, the power of his resurrection. I want to know that power. And I do. I hope you do too as well. So open your heart to the Savior right now. How do you do that? You say, well, I'm tired of taking the steering wheel of my life and guiding every direction. I'm going to do what me and... We're, I was talking to Sister Shelly this, this week, and we agreed we want to not only get out of the driver's seat, we want to go ahead and get into the back seat so we're not even close to the steering wheel. 
And we want to be chauffeured through our life, to be carried by the Spirit through our life. That's what we want to do. And so we open our heart to the Savior by getting into the back seat and say, God, you take control. I repent of my controlling uh, attitudes that I've had. I want you to take control. And so you do that now while you have time. And I want to give a second right now on the line. I'm not going to unmute the line, but I want you to give your heart to the Lord, even if you've done it a million times. Do it again. Say, Jesus, come into my heart. Come into my life. Lord, you've been in part of my life. Now I want you to be in all of my life, all my thoughts, all my plans, all my priorities. I give over to you. I know, God, there'll be times of suffering, but Lord, you can be there with me. You can help me. You can encourage me. You can, you can give me hope even when times are tough. Lord, I open the doors of my heart. Please come in and inhabit every nook and cranny. Lord, every, every shadowy area or corner of my life, come in and shine your light brightly in every area of my mind and my thoughts. Lord, and my plans and my intentions, Lord, my paths, my ways, my life, Lord God, I give it all to you, Jesus. I don't want to waste another minute of my life being self-serving, Lord. I want to, I want to be a, a servant of the Most High God. I want to get into the kingdom of heaven, be a participant in establishing the kingdom of heaven here on earth with you, Jesus, as supreme ruler, Lord God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you.